but at the same time, I think a lot of camping at that point is more going from one town to another, settling at a, at a local campground for the night. It's not really a destination experience. But, uh, you know, of course, now, nowadays we have um, unbelievable popularity of the practice as, uh, has, has only gained, I think, in the last few decades. From NCPR, welcome to Northwards. People, ideas, and conversations from and about northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support for the Northwards podcast comes from the J.C. Steininger and M.E. McDonald Charitable Fund at Adirondack Foundation in support of the Adirondack Foundation, building stronger Adirondack communities. It is a 60-degree day outside the NCPR studios as I record this, and that is why I am actually outside the NCPR studios. It's a little windy out here, maybe you can tell. Uh, Climate change aside, it's not going to be too long before being outside in the North Country is the rule rather than the exception. The annual flood of campers, tent campers, trailer campers, RV campers, people who just like sleeping on the ground, will start before you know it. I don't have any really good camping stories myself. My family camped our way across the country when I was 10 years old, and I remember basically two things from that trip. It rained almost every night, and on one of the rare nights when it didn't rain, An elk came along and ate my swimsuit that was hanging from the clothesline in our campsite. Whether you've done a lot or just a little bit of camping in your life, there are some things you probably take for granted. The map of the campground when you check in, the way the fire pit looks, the feel of your sleeping bag, and maybe you've never stopped to think about it, but all of those things, as well as everything else about camping, came as the result of some very deliberate planning and design. It turns out that those things, the planning and design, were pretty interesting too, at least as Martin Hogue tells it. Hogue is an architect and a professor of landscape architecture, and he describes his recent book as a visual history of camping's most essential items and activities. So I came back inside the studio to talk to him. Martin Hogue, welcome. Thank you so much for visiting with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. You make uh, the point when you wrap up this book that you do go camping, but you don't necessarily enjoy it all that much, which I can relate to. But reading this book, I can't help but get the sense that you really enjoy writing Mm -hmm. about camping. What makes the process of writing about it and, and the process of putting this particular book together so rewarding for you? That's a great question. I mean, it's uh, many of the colleagues that I've gotten to know over the years who are who have written about camping. I'm thinking about uh, maybe uh, Dan White and Terry Young, who have fantastic books on the history of camping, uh, are themselves, I think, avid campers. And for me, it's really uh, enjoying the kind of intellectual experience of or the what I think of as the disconnect between, I think, what I envision uh, myself to be when I go camping and the kind of reality of it on the ground. And I think once I acknowledged that and I accepted that, I really started to rediscover that practice, but more in a historical way, really trying to understand from those early days in the Adirondacks to the present time, like how have we gone from, uh, you know, a very small group of usually men uh, hiking uh, in the woods of the Adirondacks in the late 19th century 
building a camp from scratch to those large, very large uh, campgrounds uh, in state parks, national parks. And so that's been my own experience has been to really understand that kind of transformation, that physical setting. How does an architect and uh, someone who specializes in landscape architecture um, get to be, I don't know, I don't know whether you'd call yourself an expert, but certainly um, <laughs> would you consider, I mean, you know, in, in the history and maybe the aesthetics of camping? Yeah, I mean, I, for, for me, I think there's something in camping, and I didn't understand that at, at first, but it really lies at the intersection of, of resource management, spatial planning, infrastructure, uh, transportation uh, that really kind of neatly re- resolves in some way uh, in campgrounds. And so uh, I was trained as an architect. I became interested in landscape, uh, largely through art, actually, mm-hmm. and sort of became, uh, started, really moved my own career from teaching architecture to teaching uh, in landscape architecture. And uh, that's not really related to camping but, or my research, but at the same time kind of parallels that transformation in my own career. Well, so I think in, in setting up the context for this book, um, it, it helps to, to maybe get at this question. When was it that, that camping turned into like a deliberate act and not just something that people did when they had no better options to sleep for the night? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the kind of birth of, of leisure camping or recreational camping is really one that we associate with the 19th century with the Adirondacks, and, uh, but generally with uh, you know, a fair amount of wealth. You know, uh, individuals would come from New York City, Boston, uh, would hire local guides and uh, ha- head out in the woods often for several weeks at a time. I think it gains, as it gains in importance with the, uh, with the opening of the national parks, uh, 1916, uh, the, the kind of motor vehicle makes uh, cross-country travel much more available. And as that, really, I would think that the 1920s is that decade where it scales up in a significant way. But at the same time, I think a lot of camping at that point is more going from one town to another, settling at a, at a local campground for the night. It's not really a destination experience. But, uh, you know, of course, now nowadays we have... Um, just uh, unbelievable popularity of the practice has uh, has has only gained, I think, in the last few decades. Well, and and then maybe I guess the obvious question is whether that that shift to camping as a leisure activity is the catalyst that leads to the the creation of camping stuff, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think gear uh, is is a really interesting. I mean, I've become really interested in sort of camping gear over the development of this book and um, some of the early gear catalogs or gear companies like Abercrombie and Fitch are often more related to hunting. They would sell, there'd be a few pages with selling tents, sleeping bags and the like, but I think a lot of it was often more hunting gear related. And of course, those kinds of split up eventually. And the specialization of that gear is something that happens a little bit later on. But Pre-war, World War II, but I think post-war, there's a really a big explosion of these um, camping gear companies, like the North Face and so on. Like all of that really happens in the '60s and the '70s. It, it is. It's. It's 
funny or maybe quaint or or just maybe delicious to think of the the time when Abercrombie and Fitch was really an outdoors hunting supply yeah. company yeah. and not just another storefront in a in a mall someplace. Yeah, no, I think the the arc of Abercrombie is extremely <laughs> interesting in itself. I think that could be quite uh uh, uh, but yeah, I was able to get my hands on some of those early catalogs, which are quite quite interesting. In fact, I think um, as we're having this conversation, I'm remembering. I think it was on it was on Jeopardy last night that uh, there was a question about. Uh, <laughs> it was the year that uh, it was. The, I think sometime in the '90s that Abercrombie and Fitch dropped the moose from their logo, <laughs> <laughs> which has nothing to do with your book. But um, uh, so, what were the first vestiges of of camping specific stuff? For me, the campfire is often the, the, the kind of, I mean, we think of it as the kind of geographical center of the campsite, but I think there's a bit of infrastructure that develops to uh, around the campfire itself to develop a kind of permanent place. And I think the entire camp starts to revolve around the presence of the campfire. Even though we, we uh, light a fire, we put it out, we go back and forth, it is the kind of single, often center it's the functional center. It's where we cook uh, uh, meat. Is where we we stay warm. It's where we congregate. Where we socialize. So in my mind, that is often the kind of single element. And I think when you arrive at a campsite nowadays with the fire pit, I mean, it's a way a descendant of that early campfire circle, like the, the kind of rings, you know, the what what we think about with this with the stones ringing the kind of area. It's the convener. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that might be the most surprising to me in in reading through this book, though it also is the thing that maybe shouldn't have been surprising at all, and maybe I just never thought of it before, was the idea that, that everything about the design of campgrounds was a deliberate choice from the way the signs and picnic tables and, and the, the fire pit looks – to the way the the bathroom is built, mm-hmm. to the way that campgrounds are laid out, it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to think of a time that it actually someone had to or 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 some group of people had to decide this is the camping aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, I think for me the motor vehicle is really what drives, pun intended, mm-hmm. what drives the the development of that kind of scale of campground where it's no longer a group of individuals headed out. Uh, establishing a, a kind of site at their own, uh, on their own, but rather a, a large group of people that are convening upon an area. And I think the early campgrounds uh, developed by the National Park Service, when you see them in photographs in the 1910s, are no more than just big open fields and people could set up wherever they like. But you see a lot of motor vehicles in those fields. I think it becomes necessary at some point to structure the movement of vehicles around uh, those areas. And that's what leads to uh, individual parking spots, individual campsites, all of that, in my mind, really comes from the accommodation of the motor vehicle uh, in those wilder settings. Yeah, I I think for people who are used to uh, driving into the the campground and getting that campground map and finding their spot and, you know, sort of parking in a way that you can both have access to the stuff you need to get out, but also have the car feel like it's tucked out of the way a little bit. 
you'd be really surprised to look. I mean, there's a there's a picture on the back, on the back. of your book, but uh, but there are also some much earlier pictures where there are just fields full of cars and trailers and yeah. tents. One of my one of my favorite quotes uh, is of this particular period in the 1910s. Uh, someone observed in Yosemite that on the morning any one car was was leaving the campground, that it was likely to haul with it a bunch of tents that had been tied to it at, at the same time. So using cars as sort of ways to immobilize and to stabilize sense. I thought that was such a, a nice illustration of that, with the kind of chaotic way in which uh, people probably occupy those settings at that time. There, there were no like individual sites and you go, you go to campsite number seven. It was just, if there's an open spot there, just park and Set up your camp. It's kind of Woodstock, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there's there's also another idea that you write about that kind of comes along uh, that I think speaks to what camping became and and fairly early into the process, I would guess, and that's this idea of the the presumption of rusticity that seems to both inform what people are looking for and also how the the aesthetic of of signs and fire pits and bathrooms and stuff yeah. comes about. No, I think the that kind of rustic language, uh, I think, is one we associate with the national parks, the kind of painting, uh, wood brown and sort of stone. And I think that really uh, was developed at a time that that kind of aesthetic was easily exportable to infrastructure like pic picnic tables and fire pits and so on, bathrooms. And so it's one that's adopted by the park service and one that's, again, uh, finds its way into the, the kind of spatial language or the architectural language of the campground. And, and now today, it's, it's seeing a sign or, or an aesthetic like that is almost shorthand for, for camping here. It is, yeah, yeah. I feel like one of the heroes of this history is someone that if you ask the vast majority of people at a campground, uh, if you mention this name, they would never have heard of him, but, but he, he haunts this book in a lot of ways. Who was Albert Good, and, and why is he so important to so much of what camping has been about for the, the better part of a century or, or more? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you would ask that. I just a few weeks ago was able to get my hands on the first photograph that I've ever seen of Albert Good, but it's, a, it's an individual I've been interested in and thinking about for a very long time. So Good is an architect, um, was hired, worked, had a firm in Cleveland, and was hired by the Park Service during the Great Depression, early 1930s, to produce uh, uh, a compendium of, of uh, survey drawings that document all this kind of the kind of architectural components that make up uh, picnic grounds, campgrounds, all of this infrastructure in the national parks. And so it's one that he documents with these beautiful drawings. Uh, absolutely gorgeous drawings. I mean, as an architect, for me, those are just absolutely so beautifully executed. But what's really interesting about it is as he documents this uh, under contract from the Park Service, uh, this book, Park and Recreation Structures, which is published by the Park Service in the 1930s, becomes in a way the kind of reference volume for all state parks and uh, across the country. So it's one that not only documents what's going on in the national parks, but it's a book that in a way helps to explain the kind of development uh, of um, 
other campgrounds, other facilities later on as well. So it's one that really, it's, it's the base, it's the first kind of textbook of that, of that kind of architecture. Do we know why they, why they chose Albert Good of all people? The, I do not know a lot about that, but I think uh, that's a great question. Uh, Good, uh, from all uh, appearance, had a successful practice in Cleveland uh, and um, is, you know, seen a photograph that uh, his photograph by the park service, very formally dressed in a suit and tie. So I, I've never seen a photograph of him in the field, but I would imagine a lot of the work was to be in the field at various uh, campgrounds and parks across the country documenting carefully uh, measuring all these uh, facilities. And so, but I've never seen him in action. And it's, uh, but when you see the photograph, it's one that doesn't necessarily resolve <laughs> well <laughs> with an image of a kind of outdoor-minded individual, right, who would take pleasure in sort of doing that. He doesn't, he doesn't affect the Teddy Roosevelt look. <laughs> no, he, he, he did not. But it's interesting to think about because he he was you know I'm sure there was some work done in this area before that but he's he's kind of creating so much of this out of whole cloth. Yeah, there was a very few um, books that I was able to find before that. Um, good, in fact, the the first edition of the book proved so popular that it was expanded to a two volume set and. Uh, it's fairly easy to find a reprint of that two-book set nowadays. Uh, but there were a couple of other similar volumes in maybe in the late 1910s, early 20s. But I think um, Good is the is the one reference that I think uh, many scholars will go back to. Yeah. Again, not the first, but certainly the most comprehensive and the most uh, impactful. For me, as an architect... Uh, for a long time, I was wondering, like, how do architects get interested in camping? And coming across good and realizing he was an architect really validated some of my own intuitions about uh, my own interests in this field. So, you know, there's a justification there. Like, like you should have a, a picture of the, the picture of Albert Good framed behind your yeah. desk. Well, I, I, I the photograph is high res, so I, I'm uh, no. It's it was great. I mean, again, after years to actually see him. In a photograph was a very moving moment. Like it was, it was great. Oh wow! Uh, well, and and we've been talking sort of around what his contribution was, but you know, say you're a modern day 21st century camper and uh, you've secured a spot at a campground in the Adirondack Park or uh, Shenandoah National Park right. or or what have you. As you look around your campsite and as you look around the campground, what are the what are the things that that Albert Good contributed to that that are still present as you're camping here in the in this first half of the 21st century? I mean, I think the one individual I would think would be even more influential uh, in its own, in his own way would be uh, Emilio Meineke, who mm -hmm. is the individual who really formulated the kind of spatial guidelines of roads and how these one-way roads and these these individual campsites. So that kind of infrastructure, I think, is absolutely connected to to um, to Meineke. I think I think Albert Good certainly the the kind of architectural character of the infrastructure is is one that I think we really connect him to. But for me, the when looking at that book, you, he has very specific chapters on. Each one of those components, uh, the picnic table has, for example, an entire chapter. And I think it's very interesting that he sought to establish the, the general typologies that exist of all that kind of equipment, the stuff that is in place that greets us when we arrive. And it's 
re- restrooms. I mean, there's a, a, a significant amount. Water fountains. Yeah. Even. yeah. Uh, the, uh, there's a significant amount of stuff that I think one doesn't really pay attention to until a book like this one helps you to realize that all of that stuff is, is extremely uh, intentionally designed, situated, and uh, for me that was kind of a revelation. I think one of the things that might surprise people about this book is uh, you do a fair amount of writing about corporate camping, if you will, mm-hmm. the, the the KOA phenomenon. And you write very even-handedly, even, even positively about where KOA fits into the, into the history of camping and the camping aesthetic. Yeah. For me, my first campground experience was at a KOA. And so it's one that I've often associated that that specific interest. They were very generous to allow me into their archives and being able to uh, review um, the material that they had um, that they had available. I think what's really noticeable to me about about uh, KOAs is the idea that in I think 1962 they begin really with one facility, and by the 1970s, the end of the 70s, they were. Uh, something like 800 KOAs across the country, and it's that number has actually expanded uh, and and shrunk at the same time. But it's one that to me is a remarkable idea, and it, one that we also the idea that a facility like that could be private, could be privatized, and certainly uh, monetized. That that experience could be monetized for me, I found very interesting as well. And also the marriage of, of camping with miniature golf. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> when you yeah when you look at KOA, I think the proliferation of services and comforts at a KOA are uh, <laughs> often cross the line into this isn't camping anymore. But I what I'm always been really interested in is the finding that line, and I think you know KOA have really. Um, have thought of themselves largely as innovators, but I often really push the envelope. But their, uh, you know, phone uh, reservations, camping directories, all of that stuff, it really happens with KOAs, and these practices have been adopted elsewhere later on. Uh, but they've also had some efforts that have been a little bit less uh, successful. <laughs> but I think it's I, I really enjoy the kind of broad thinking that they that they brought to the experience. I we talked a little about photography, uh, mainly the the photo of Albert Good, but uh, I wanted to ask you a little about Bruce Davidson, mm-hmm. whose photos of campers at Yosemite show up in many places throughout this book. Um, they don't paint a very glamorous image of 1960s Yosemite. What was the point Davidson was trying to make by by taking the, the series of photos that he did? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe uh, to me, those photographs are really important. I would say Albert Good and Davidson's are my two kind of central references in setting up this book. I think um, the photographs he took of Yosemite campers, I think there were maybe 12 or 13. It's part of a much larger body of work, but it's the only time in his body, in his career, that he focused on campers. I think he was maybe trying to show showcase the kind of unglamorous nature of that experience. But when you look at these photographs, it's also very interesting to me that you cannot uh, identify Yosemite as a place. Like, it could be anywhere. And I think maybe there's a commentary there about place, that the the settings themselves are fairly, have become by that point fairly generic and recognizable and that they could be, that they could be anywhere. For me, when I saw those photographs for the first time, was the moment where I could 
I identified someone who was thinking in a similar way that I was about, or that I aspired to about this work. And so that was also extremely important. Um, it is interesting, I think, uh, to to think about you know the the inception of so many of these objects. Um, you know, I was reading you know through this about the evolution of the tent over the yep. years, for example. Um, what objects do you think have changed the most, and and maybe what objects have have changed the least over time? Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised to learn that sleeping bags are really an invention that is fairly recent, 150 years or so. Um, I, I would say that the tent technologically has really evolved in extremely interesting ways. Um, I think uh, certainly all technologies around fire and cooking have become also uh, much more uh, specialized in terms of fuel, in terms of the ability to kind of get a cooking flame within a few seconds as I had to push of a button. When We're not roasting of, the hot dogs yeah, over the flame yeah. anymore. Or right. when I think about um, some of these early camping uh, how-to books from the 1910s and 20s or even late 19th century, the amount of often several chapters would be dedicated to the art of building a fire, a campfire from scratch. Um, this idea now that you can press on a button and be able to get it. <laughs> There's an entertaining picture of you uh, with a uh, yeah. with a campfire, and I, I suspect you were not the uh, the flint and stone nope. uh, type. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think the yeah, or that you can buy wood in a box, you right. know, which is uh, so. I think I would say those are the ones that I try to spend a little bit more time on. But I, I would think that the tent and the camp campfire are the or fire in general, say, would be uh, some of the technologies that have evolved the most. I've become recently interested in also food as a kind of uh, potentially as a maybe it's not in the book, but as a future chapter, as a future article, like the the dehydration of food, all this kind of packaging where it becomes its own form of gear. And any gear store now has several aisles <laughs> dedicated to these highly specialized foods where all you need to do is add water and you have this pretty delicious meal. So that's Here's this very, vacuum sealed beef yeah, bourguignon. Yeah, yeah, that could stay on a shelf, right, for months or years <laughs> at a time. So I think that's really interesting and one that I would be intrigued to pursue further. Why was the Nalgene bottle such a breakthrough when it came along in 1949? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what's great about the Nalgene bottle, too, is that it's a regional uh, claim to fame. Mm -hmm. I did not know that, but it was, uh, you know, a, a company founded in Rochester, New York, which is great, <laughs> uh, but really as a kind of um, a labware company, cheap labware. But I think at the end, uh, at the beginning of the 1970s, those bottles um, – Outdoor enthusiasts realized that those bottles could be, in a way, repurposed towards uh, <laughs> and brought into the outdoors. And, and of course, as we know now, uh, there are so many different variations <laughs> of Nalgene bottles. Uh, and it's, uh, it's the type of artifact that, again, it's become so ubiquitous. It's no longer associated strictly with outdoor recreation. Uh, most of my students have an Algene <laughs> bottle, uh, and when you walk around a campground, so it is. It, it has become a kind of such a, such an iconic object. I could imagine some of your students reading this book and <laughs> saying. They invented it in 1949. What did people put stickers on before that? <laughs> yeah, and it's. I mean, I think when you look at a often. Um, RVs and campgrounds will have on the backside of the RV all the stickers of the parks <laughs> where they camp. Well, the Nalgene bottle is the kind of 
uh, low rent version of that same experience, <laughs> right? You kind of plaster all these <laughs> stickers such that you can't even see uh, inside of the bottle anymore. Right. It's interesting to think about what you've compiled here in the context of some of the guidebooks that you write about. How would you envision people using this book? In my mind, what I envision, I think when we designed the book, the, the physical artifact, I want it to be very fairly small so it could fit uh, in your backpack and it could be brought into uh, at the campsite, and they're really not a book that's meant to be a coffee table book that you only keep at home, but something whose size and weight invites it being packed along with the rest of your gear. I envision in my own mind, like people at the pic- picnic table in the in the evening or at the campfire. Um, reading a chapter once in a while. Like it has a kind of the length of the chapters, not so long that it could be digested within an hour. And then so that's what it felt like that would be um, to, to understand those settings by reading about them in that place where the experience it's, itself is taking place. That was my goal. That was the hope. I guess if worse comes to worse, it's probably flammable too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought about that too. <laughs> So I gather if you were to find Albert Good's original work, there are echoes of it in how you constructed this book. Yeah, I think the the uh, Park and Recreation Structures is really set up in a extremely uh, – each, each chapter is focused on a single piece of infrastructure. There's a chapter, for example, on fire pits. There's a chapter on – picnic tables uh, and the like. And I think in fashioning this book, I was really interested in replicating that structure. So in this book, there are eight chapters, each one dealing with one of those, what we uh, think about are the the kind of foundational components uh, of, of the campsite. So there's the campsite, the picnic table, the fire pit, the tent, the sleeping bag, uh, systems for disposing of trash, systems for delivering water, um, and of course, one that I'm interested in too is the the map as a kind of artifact. So I really I wanted to honor good in in a way by using a uh, way to organize all of this knowledge uh, into these extremely clear chapters that echo the structure of his book. Yeah, I mean it's also interesting to think of the the someone who's designing a campground now is using so many of Good's ideas possibly without having any idea that they're Good's ideas. Yeah, yeah, and I mean I, I would say good for the kind of architectural elements, and Meineke for the kind of spatial planning. And it's really interesting that the Meineke, this single article, it's eight pages, is the absolute blueprint for all spatial layouts of all motor vehicle center. Camp campgrounds around all go back to the rules and kind of spatial patterns that he set in motion there. So the impact of this single article are pretty extraordinary. A Meineke Big Bang, if you will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really just interesting stuff. Martin Hogue, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Martin Hogue lives in Syracuse and is a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture at Cornell University. His recent book is called Making Camp, A Visual History of Camping's Most Essential Items and Activities. There is a link to more about it and more about him at ncpr.org slash northwards. Now here is Ethan Shanty with a list of our most essential staff members, the people who put this podcast together. 
Northwards is an NCPR podcast production. The show is written, edited, and produced by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Caitlin Kelly handles our social media, Bill Hanel is our digital director, and Doyle Dean is our production manager. Music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.